down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets around, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets around, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy, my liberty friends. I'm Jacob Lindsay, as always, and I'm joined... Mason Joseph. All right. All right. I guess I should have said joined by or yeah, joined kind by. Of pause there. Yeah. Like, yeah. All right. Well, I'll cut it out. Uh, no, I'll leave it in. It's fine. Leave it in. Okay. Well, then we'll keep going. So uh, this, you know, this last dynamic. Yeah. There you go. So the um, the last week, my stomach has kind of been upset. So I'm going to abstain from wine drinking. Drinking. Um, just in case, you know, I feel much better than I was, but just in case, I'm trying to take it easy. Although I did have a burrito a few minutes ago, so I don't know if that's I don't know if that's taking it easy. Homemade <laughs> burrito? No, a burrito from there's this place called Fuel City Taco. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty cool place. It's, it's it's a gas station, but they've got like a little taco stand next to it. Yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah, uh, super good. It. Yeah, it's really good. And then they have like longhorn cattle and donkeys and stuff in the back. Nice. And uh, so we stopped there. Actually, we stopped there for lunch, and then when we were driving back, oh, for everybody who doesn't know, I was just telling Mason, we went to the water park today, uh-huh. and, um, you know, we went to get tacos on the way there, and then on the way back, we stopped and got tacos, or, well, burritos, and um, <laughs> so uh, it's really good, it's very cheap, and it's always got a line out the door, <laughs> so... Um, well, it's an out, it's an outdoor stand, so it's not really out the door. It's just in front of the facility. It has a line. Yeah, yeah. So that's the takeaway. Yep, that's the takeaway. It's really good. Yeah. So if you're ever in Dallas, look up Fuel City Taco and go check out the livestock. So behind the scenes, uh-huh. I, I hadn't had a chance to ask Jacob this. Uh, typically, when he, he ends up having an upset stomach, eventually he traces it to something he probably shouldn't have eaten. Usually, yeah. something that had been overlong in the fridge or overlong on the counter. So right. I'm waiting for the next couple of days once he figures that out. Yeah. Well, I was I was trying to think of it, and I and Victoria and I believe that we traced it back to this like nacho platter that I ate at uh at well, it was actually also at the water park because we went last weekend also mm. and. With our, you know, Diamond Elite member pass or whatever, we get 50% off of all purchases. So uh-huh. we were like, well, let's just eat there. And Victoria wisely got a turkey leg, and which is just a, a roasted turkey leg. And I was like, well, I'm going to get nachos with barbecue on it. And uh, yeah, it, and it tasted pretty good, but it was very clearly, you know, and I, I eat fairly healthy most of the time. Mm-hmm. And it had this like Ortega Velveeta style type cheese on it. And I think that's what got me was, gotcha. was this, this like kind of weird combination of like super sugary barbecue and cheese, like fake cheese. Oh, this is all sounding awful. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that's what it is, but I, I don't know for sure because it lasted for several days. I just didn't feel good for like almost a week and then huh. yeah, started feeling better. Uh, I guess yesterday I started feeling much better and, or no, I guess it was Friday. I started feeling a lot better and then, um, and now I, I'm pretty much back to normal. So, but just oh. in case, I'm I'm not having the wine, but I've got an exciting wine for next week. So everybody got to come back for the next episode because this wine is unique and unusual, and it's not from Georgia. Uh-huh. Yeah. So and by Georgia we mean the country. Yeah, the country Georgia. So, uh, do you got a wine this week, Mason? I do. Okay. You want to share so, it with the folks? Well, there's a setup. Okay. So one of the series of articles that. I'm attempting to work on for the series is uh, Tales from the Discount Rack. 
as you know, but maybe the listeners don't because they don't visit our website, tastinganarchy.com, right. um, which is where I go into the Kroger that my wife and I shop at, and they have a fairly large wine selection. And I buy something that has been discounted. So this wine was discounted from fifteen fifty nine to nine twenty three. Um, now, I question if it's really discounted that much, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I've started kind of paying attention to it, and I think they're listing maybe some uh like the original price when they first brought it into the store not the price that they sold it day to day right okay yeah Um, so as usual we find with european wines Uh they either have a really good website a terrible website or no website at all right um this wine is listed as villa riesling 2014 spatzlis moselle now moselle which sounds like mosel yeah and the way it's spelled we've had we've talked about this one before it's a wine growing region in germany mm-hmm. they do a lot of rieslings there um Spatzlis is a thing we've talked about before as well but it basically means late harvest so okay. they do this a lot with dry whites um where they'll do a late harvest to get the sugar as pushed as far as possible but they have to like kind of do this special timing so it doesn't get rained out things like that so the bottle um you know it's one of those narrow Seven seven hundred fifty milliliter ones. Yeah, you know, tall and narrow. Um, Spetslees wines are made from riper grapes that usually have been picked at a later stage in the harvest. These wines are more distinctive in flavor and concentration. Good with richer, more distinctive in flavor. Oh, excuse me. Good with richer or flavorful foods are by themselves. Of all the grapes in Germany, the most notable is the Riesling, a variety that can be. Well, that can do well even in stony soil and can subsist on a minimal amount of moisture. It's dependable bearer of high. It's a dependable bearer of high quality grapes, which have an acidity level that gives the wine a breezy freshness hmm. and contributes to a long life. Riesling produces elegant wines of a rich character and an incomparable fragrance and taste. Now, that is a incredibly dense thing of information. Yeah, it's actually on the back of the bottle of wine. Wow. Okay. So what's interesting about this one is it actually, the label Mm -hmm. is for the Eco Valley, Salisbury, North Carolina. So this is who imported it. Okay. Um, Oh, that's interesting. It's not Connecticut. Yeah. So you said that Connecticut thing. Yeah. Every foreign wine I've seen since then has not gone through Connecticut. That's interesting. You know, and since I said that Connecticut thing, I've been looking at the backs of a lot at the Russian store when we go pick up stuff. And a lot of those are imported through like either South Carolina or Houston. <laughs> so I, I'm, so I, I don't know if it was maybe just, I just happened to get a lot of the Connecticut ones because I see the Connecticut on the back of them all the time. Or maybe for mm. some reason that stood out to me. Maybe. But uh, yeah, the last, the, like the last couple of Georgians that I had, um, some of them were imported from Connecticut, but some were imported through Houston or through South Carolina. Yeah. So this one, um, I tried going to the Eco Valley website to find out more about it. Um, I can't tell if the winery is Villa Riesling. Maybe that's why I couldn't find anything about it. So maybe they oh. have a really good website. And I just couldn't find it. Uh, but on the Eco Valley, I didn't really see anything that kind of said villa on it for right. like products or wines um so i don't know a lot about this uh like on a, a wine review site it was kind of i found a different varietal of riesling that mm. they offered um a riper category than the cabinet which is a, a different picking time for riesling but you know as we know there's an international riesling scale i don't know how this is given that it's a spots lease i'm thinking it's probably more of a sweeter wine mm-hmm. but here's the thing this is only 7.5 percent alcohol by volume how much 7.5 wow that is wow that's really? like that's like a beer it's like a dessert wine 
Yeah. So what and giving it's a late harvest pick. That's wait, wait, wait. So seven or 17? Seven, uh, 7.5. No, that's like a dessert wine's usually like 16 or 17. That's oh, like, yeah, because they're fortified usually. Uh, huh. I have no, that is really, really low for a wine. Yeah. So huh. very strange. Uh, and it's funny because it's the, you know, this is a clearly U.S. label. Okay. Like label for the U.S. market. Um, but it's got the uh, comma instead of the period. Interesting. The percentage. So how, how interesting that's like, uh, you know what? And actually in Virginia, I want, you know, I wonder if you can do the calculation on this, but in Virginia, that is a much lower tax, uh, for alcoholic drinks that are under 10% or maybe hmm. under 11, they're categorized differently. So that would be, so like, uh, if you have like a cider and the cider is a high, a high alcohol content, uh-huh. like over 11 or over, I don't remember the number exactly, but if it's over a certain amount, it becomes an apple wine and is taxed at the wine, which is like 30%. Yeah. And then like the, the, if it's lower, it's a cider and it's taxed like a beer and it's much, much, it's a much lower percentage, like 10 or something like that. So this is probably one of the most flavorful Rieslings. Okay. I've had. So, um, high acidity on the back end. Um, it is sweet, but it's not the sickeningly sweet okay. Riesling flavor. You know, like the last Riesling I think we had together was oversweet. Right. Um, I think it's really good, but like when I pulled air across it, instead of getting a wine pull off, uh-huh. I just got more Riesling flavor, which is really interesting. Huh. So, um, you know, um, I think this is going to give me heartburn pretty bad because the acidity is pretty high on it. Mm-hmm. Um, which generally kind of like with a Riesling usually means more of the alcohol is converted. The sugar is converted to alcohol. Yeah. So, I don't know if this is just a like a weird pick on this one. Um, I didn't realize it was seven point five when I bought it. I probably wouldn't have bought it. I okay. knew it was that low because um, otherwise, for me, you know, why drink it? Right, <laughs> um, right. But um, so far, it's really good. Huh. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, I think you would enjoy the flavor um, if it wasn't too sweet. Right. That's the one thing where. I don't think it's very sweet. I'm pretty sensitive to sweet, though I'm not as sensitive as you are. Yeah. Um, so, but I think for a Riesling, it's a very good flavor. Um, it's got the, like Riesling kind of to me always has like a lemon flavor, but without lemon. Okay. The, the hint of. Maybe like, like lemon zest. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think lemon zest is probably a good descriptor. Okay. Um, you know, like Riesling is one of those wines that I like Pinot Gris more. Mm-hmm. But really good Rieslings can be really interesting because there's just a lot of depth of flavor there okay. and that I pick up on. Now, you know, it's like when we were really into the calves, we were starting to pick up a lot of flavors there. Right, right. Um, so, but like Rieslings, I can kind of usually pull out a little more. Now, I did put this into chill in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took it out at 7.57 and it's 8.12 now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as cold as I would want it to be. Okay. I don't know if it just didn't get cold enough because I didn't put it in early enough. Um, but I think that's helping the flavor too because it's okay. not muting it as much. Yeah. Because uh, don't they, isn't it something like uh, re, like Rieslings are supposed to be served at like 30 Celsius, which I, I, don't, um, know, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I think it's supposed to be like 50 or 60 because 30 okay. Celsius is like 80 degrees. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it's it is. It's 86. So maybe maybe it's supposed to be 20? Um, I don't know. But no, that would be 68. That's still kind of warm. No, 68, 50 to 60. Like, when we looked it up before, European wines were, like, only supposed to be, like, within 10 degrees of each other. Oh, okay. Oh, you know what? I, I do recall that because one was supposed to be room temperature, but it was a warmer room temperature than ours. And then the other was supposed to be chilled, but it was not the way that Americans chill. Yeah. So on the on the mouthfeel, like I said, it has a heavy acidity to it mm-hmm. on the back end. Um, it's kind of viscous, and I think that's part of the acidity there. Okay. So kind of like it's um, not eating at your tongue necessarily, but mm-hmm. 
like kind of coating it, which what acid does is it, it kind of pulls the cells off the tongue. Um, so if you, I think for like, if you're cooking for a white wine, like uh-huh. I go to cooking a lot, um, this would be really good because you don't have to burn off a lot of the alcohol. So you'd have to base when you did it, but like, this is really tasty. Good. So, well, that sounds like yeah. a, uh, a discount wine. Well, well-deserved or well-purchased. Uh, yeah. Well-purchased is what yeah. I would go with. Um, right. so just a couple other things about it. It's got a screw cap, which is, um, we see more and more and less and less depending on where, where you're looking. Yeah. Well, see, um, it seems like, uh, it seems like whites have a screw cap more often and then cheaper reds. Yes. Like that, red blends. Yeah. Or, yeah. But like not high end, not a higher end red blend. Right, <laughs> right. Cheap red blend. Um, but yeah, like I, um, so if you look at the front of the bottle, it says Villa Riesling Mosul 2014 Spetsleys. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what, and then like on the, the foil on the top, it says Villa Riesling. So I think Villa Riesling might be the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're specifically in the Mosul Valley and Spetsleys is the, the type. And this is 2014. So for a white, at least in my experience with the Rieslings, that's kind of old. Okay. Um, but you know, they usually, you usually see them consumed quicker than that. Um, but definitely, uh, definitely a fun wine. Okay. So I, I think I found the bottle on, uh, Vanessa wines where it says, it says 2014 Villa Mosel Cabinet Germany Riesling. Is that it? No. No, that's not it. Okay. The cabinet is the, um, the other varietal is the other picking method. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. This is a spat, spatolese Riesling? Spatolese. Yeah. Okay. I could, the only thing I can find for that on here is for 2010. Yeah. So it that's, that's pretty old. It's very difficult to try to find. Yeah. Huh. About it. How interesting. I, I wonder I why it. that is. Oh, you did? Oh, cool. Well, um, I found, so, uh, I found the Facebook for Eco Wine. Okay. So, uh, this may be like in, um, Romerhof Weinenkeller. <laughs> yeah. I see, I see it. Yep. Yeah. Vine, so, Vine, Vine Very pretty, very pretty yeah, picture. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, maybe a winery that's defunct. Um, it could be not necessarily defunct, but, um, maybe rebranded. Right. The, the European wineries sometimes are very hard for Americans to follow because, um, in America, it seems that the wineries, if it's a winery specifically, mm-hmm. then that exists for a long time. Right. Sometimes a wine brand may come and go, like Barefoot, the company, you know, the company that owns it may spin off a successful one for a while, and then if that style collapses, right, um, they'll move out of it. Yeah, you know, that's where, yeah, so, yeah. Because I know, like right now, they were saying that rosés had like a forty percent increase or something like that in purchases and which we should do a rosé just because but uh because they're getting real popular and it's kind of a just an interesting one to do but um i could see like a lot of people going like oh well let's let's increase our rosé production but it's it's young people who are buying them and as they get older they may their palate may refine or change or um they may switch to something else yeah because i always kind of associate rosés as like a woman's wine and Although I've had a few lately and just cause I'm kind of interested, they have a dry rosé section at our local, uh, Total Wine and I'm sure they mm-hmm. do at yours as well. Um, so I've gotten a couple of dry rosés from there and I'm like, you know what? I can, I can see the appeal of this. It's, it's definitely a refreshing wine and in a place where it's really hot, like here or, or Virginia, I could see this being like one of the types of wines you want to kind of just bring out to the pool or whatever and, and drink. Yeah, this one, the, so the Villa Riesling mm-hmm. um, that I'm drinking, I wouldn't bring it out to the pool with me. Okay. Uh, it's leaving me with a little bit of dry mouth. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, I, w- I would want 
more more water uh, water but yeah i would need more to this now that just yeah. could be me um you know didn't brush my teeth before i usually do mm-hmm. you know who knows right um so moving along okay that i had a question for you to see where sure. we stood on things okay so as you know and the readers our readers and listeners uh may know i live in hampton roads mm-hmm. specifically in virginia and uh, we recently had uh, the supposed Category 5 Storm of Death Florence supposed right. to smash into us and murder everybody. Yeah. So on Tuesday of last week, the storm wasn't predicted to be really impacting the area until maybe Thursday. Okay. They issued a mandatory evacuation for right. Zone A. Now, those who don't know, and That's, I will yeah. count myself as part of those, they have apparently come out with a flooding map. And I thought this was a... Thing that only specifically applied like Norfolk had its own zone A and Virginia Beach had its own, own zone okay. A. Okay, yeah. So all of Hampton Roads and presumably I don't know where else, maybe up the Eastern Shore and all that stuff um, have these zones. Okay. So zone A is like along the coastal front, and then Virginia, like where like parts where, of Virginia Beach. Well, I think where I used to live was zone A. Yeah, because it's so, by the river. Yeah. So there's the big thing of zone A, and then there's zone B, C, D, E, and F. Like, I think it goes all the way to that. And each zone, as you go back, is more and more prone, or less and less prone prone to flooding. Yeah. So they issued a mandatory evacuation for Zone A on Tuesday, and then, like, canceled school. And we got less rain than I think we would have if there wasn't a hurricane. Right. We barely got impacted at all. Like, and, you know, people in Wilmington, many people have lost homes. Like, they had a historic flooding event because it was a direct strike from a Category 1, which was pushing a lot of storm surge in front of it. So this is in no way saying that, like, this was a non-event sort of thing because right. for some people it was, and it's still impacting, like, North Carolina itself, South Carolina, like, the interiors that don't normally get this level of rain. Mm-hmm. And it's going to apparently come up through the eastern part of Virginia and then, like, go through D.C. and up to the north if it hasn't already. So in my office, this was clearly the talk of the town because right. it impacted our work uh, quite heavily, as you know. But yeah. we'll leave it to the reader's imagination to guess what that is. But <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Right. Um, but I don't think – so what do you think of an, a mandatory evacuation order? Uh, I mean – I don't. I don't really know how they can enforce it. For one, um, probably if they issued it, I don't even know if I would do it. I, I don't know if I would just leave unless they showed up and like we're gonna make you get out. And then I'd be like, okay, well, I don't really want the conflict. But uh, I, I don't. I don't know where I stand on it because it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, you're wrong most of the time. The the government mm-hmm. is and. And it's like, I, I think I am, as somebody who like lives in the area or has lived in the area for a while, I would have a better sense of what's going on than somebody in Richmond. Yeah. So, but thought- uh, yeah, but at the same time, like, you know, I also know why they do it. They do it to cover their butts when reelection comes, because if they don't do anything, it'll be like, when, remember when Chris Christie uh, was kind of left like holding the bag because he didn't issue any evacuations or anything and then and he wasn't a super popular governor and then everybody was like yeah but then he didn't get everybody evacuated for whatever that storm was that they had superstorm sandy yeah superstorm sandy and like it ended up flooding new york a lot and and new jersey got 
like hit, but Chris Christie, I guess, didn't issue the evacuation until late. And so everybody was like, oh. So now every governor who thinks that he took a political hit for that doesn't want to, you know, be left holding the bag or whatever at the end and being like, oh, crap, I should have done something earlier. So it seems like and it seems like this is more and more frequent. They issue these warnings and these evacuations much earlier than in my recollection they used to. Mm-hmm. And, and I could be completely wrong. It may be a matter of perspective, but it just seems yeah. like they're yeah. like they're like, oh, it's raining a little bit hard. You should probably evacuate. Well, it wasn't even raining. Yeah. So uh, you thought along the same track I did. So my immediate thought was, well, how that, how is that enforced? Right. What is the, what does this evacuation mean? So long story short, basically there were multiple governor or multiple state or mayors, so city mayors and things like that coming out and basically being like, yeah, at a certain point, we're just not going to be coming. Like if you call the police, we're not going to show up. Right. And so basically, like you said, it was an excuse for their lack of action yeah if something were to go wrong with you and you know there's a certain level of i pay your salary cop i expect you to show up when i call because you steal from me so i can't have a private police force Mm -hmm. so but like i also you know like volunteer firefighters who are volunteers and sometimes they're compensated you know whatever that's fine i don't think they should be risking their lives but i think it should be up to them you know you think it's safe enough to go go you don't don't um, but that's the thing is I think it was, I think it's an, a violation of property rights. Mm-hmm. Who are you to tell me that I have to leave my property? Right. The government's response should be that, you know, at a certain point, we are no longer going to be able to provide you these lackluster services we already do. And if you choose to stay, you choose to stay. Right. And we can't get you out if something happens yeah. or we will put you on a list. And when we can, and it's safe for the yeah. We're responsible for we will because that's the same thing that your like insurance company would theoretically do right and that's one of the things that people don't seem to get about and this is what i think makes this a rich topic mm-hmm. is your insurance company may require that you leave right hampton roads get to tennessee check in with a coordinator and like get paperwork signed that you were there right to maintain your insurance because they're the ones who are liable for you having a problem because you're, you know, they're yeah. responsible in that thing. Right. And people are like, well, isn't that a government? It is, but you don't have to choose that insurance company. Yeah. Well, and I've also, I've had this argument or discussion, I guess, with people before where they, all, where they're like, well, your insurance companies would eventually become governments. And I always say, well, they, you could call it a government if you want. It's not a government. It's an, it's a service that you purchase voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to call it a government, fine, but it's not the state. And yeah. like, and there's a difference between being part of a voluntary hierarchical structure or whatever that acts as a government and being forced to be in some sort of organization that, you know, beats you up or steals from you or puts you in a cage if you don't do what they want. And, uh, and you, the only reason you're part of this organization is because you happen to be born somewhere. And uh, oh, and by the way, if you're born somewhere else, you can't come in unless we say. Exactly. And that's the thing is people would also then make the argument, well, what if there's only one insurance company? Yeah. Well, that's a voluntary relationship that you've elected to pursue. Right. And if the market, yeah. if the market, really dumb area called yeah. the Outer Banks, right. Where, you know, it's an island that naturally formed because of hurricanes and gets washed away because of hurricanes. Right. But, you know, I expect somebody to insure me here. Right. Well, and that's, you know, that's part of the big reason why these disasters are so expensive is Mm -hmm. because the government forces current insurance companies to, is it called underwriting? I think when Uh they, yeah, when they insure you to underwrite these, these insurance policies on like floodplains. And so like, you know, a long time ago, 
the Outer Banks was inhabited not by wealthy people with these very nice houses. It was inhabited by poor blacks because mm-hmm. the land was cheap and they could, you know, put their thing up there. And, and if, you know, a storm came and washed it away, you know, it was cheap. So they didn't really worry about it. It was cheap housing. Uh-huh. And, and then when the, the whole insurance, the property insurance type thing came about and, the, the insurance companies were like, yeah, we're not going to underwrite you having a house on this island or whatever. But the government came in and said, no, 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 go ahead and give them insurance because we'll cap your liability and we'll cover the rest uh-huh. and at the expense of everybody else. So they started building these very nice houses on places like the Outer Bank or floodplains along the Mississippi because people want a water view. And it's it's beautiful. Like I, I would love to live somewhere like that. But there is a cost to that as well. And the cost is that you are at risk for natural disasters. And the government has distorted the market to the point where people put very expensive property or buildings on property that is prone to flooding, prone to these various other things. Like, I mean, same thing in California. Like, there's millions of people who live on these fault lines, and uh-huh. if an earthquake happens, well, I mean, that, that's a ton of property destroyed that would bankrupt most companies, and yet... Yeah. The government underwrites it. And most of the, most of those insurance policies don't cover, yeah, like losses over a certain Richter scale. And same with the hurricane. Right, right. They don't cut, like, oh, it's an act of God, which is an indeterminable act. Right. So, and that's the thing that, like, people, and I think this is the insidious nature of the government at work. You and I contractually agree to produce this show together. Right. And you and I contractually agree to XYZ with profits. Right. So, or losses, you know, we were willing, you know, we know what we're willing to put in and we know when we're willing to cut our losses and we know, you know, what happens if things go south. Right. But when you have an insurance policy that you think covers something because you're told it does, but then there's that asterisk and these, you know, like I said, like I talked about last week where, or we talked briefly about like where I think society is going. And I think the first form of the new governments as I perceive them is the end user agreement. Right. It's a contract where you and I, as a producer, expressly state what we expect from each other. To use my product, you have to agree to X. And if you don't, you can't use the product. Right. Which makes sense because, hey, you're, as a producer, you are in this current, and, and I don't necessarily think this is how things would be in the end, but you're trying to mitigate your liabilities right. by producing a legal document that people are willing to sign. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think it's insane that they voided these documents because people are like, oh yeah, you just know nobody reads those. Right. That's irrelevant. Yeah. Yes, one reads them, but that doesn't void my claim. Right. Based- document because yeah yeah, oh you wrote it so nobody could understand it okay there is something to that in essence if you specifically use wording that is archaic or esoteric or purposely misleading oh oh, you mean you mean like the laws (laughs) i do yes (laughs) but that's the thing is like yeah i mean a lot of it's make work for lawyers so i mean that's that's part of it and i don't necessarily disagree but i also don't necessarily think that's the truth because i think that's the insidious nature of the government Right. If you don't have this, yeah. then you open yourself up to an amazing liability. Yeah. If you do have this, you cap your losses at a certain point. Right. And and that's the thing is, and I think that's kind of the problem with insurance. It's like, you know, oh, what covers hurricane insurance? Nothing. Because, you know, the government's going to cover you. Excuse me. Like, I'm willing, to be res- I'm willing to pay what it costs to be restored to what you and I contractually agree my house is worth. Right. Not what the government decides. So that's where, to me, it's so 
insane that we, and then, you know, the, this is what the thing that people like to say is like, oh, those greedy insurance companies, they're not willing to cover these losses. Why should they be? Right. Like, why? Yeah. Why would they like, want? Yeah. I mean, like, remember when uh, that her earthquake happened that had the Fukushima disaster attached to it mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and Aflac almost went bankrupt because of it? I didn't remember Aflac almost went bankrupt from it. But. Yeah, like, well, it wasn't the entire company because I guess they're divided up into, like, regions, but their they're Japanese regional one. There were so many claims against it that uh, they were like, we've they, they basically, I think what they did is they spun it off and bankrupted it and then started a new one in its place so that the liabilities would be capped. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, it was, you know, this is kind of the thing. Like, when there's a natural disaster like this, if they don't charge the appropriate amount, it is the end of the insurance company. Mm -hmm. And because they just won't have the money to cover it. Oh, um, but I don't, I don't, don't quote me on what happened with Aflac, but I remember that it was, like, a ridiculous amount of claims against them. Well, and that's the thing. It's not even a ridiculous amount of claims. Yeah. It's, and this is one of those things is, so there, there are two ways to look at this. And this is where you need somebody like Bob Murphy to do a deep dive. Right. Because Bob isn't going to give cover to the government if it's a government inaction. But he's also not going to give cover to the market if it's a market failure. Right. Because there's an actuarial science to determining, you know, what's the predicted loss. My understanding with those those tsunamis that and things that were produced with that earthquake is they were outside of the actuarial historical data range. Right. Like there were stones in Japan that said, don't build lower than this. Right. And people ignored it completely. Yeah. But that wasn't even in the actuarial data. Right. Which could be a choice of mismanagement on the company's part. Right. Or it could be shade put on things by the government saying, sure. those stones are nonsense. Whereas, you know, you go in their official records because these towns have been around for, you know, longer, yeah. 500 years. Right. Like, no, I don't know. These are real. Like, and so that's, that's kind of the, I think it's interesting, especially like when you see things like on Mises Wire and it's like, well, actually. Yeah. So this is interesting because I have a story from Mises Wire today. Oh, very uh, good. I, and, well, we can, but let me, your story actually sort of plays into my story from today. Oh, uh, that's right. You did have a story yeah. from today. Okay. So I do. Yeah. So I have a story from today that happened. You know, like I was saying earlier, we went to the water park and we're Diamond Elite members because, you know, that's how we roll. So, uh, yeah, we, we got, we, you know, we bought the Diamond Elite passes or whatever so that we could go to Six Flags and to the Hurricane Harbor. And they kind of just throw in the last couple of months of the year. So we were at Hurricane Harbor, which is the water park. And when you have these passes, you get uh, to access to like this special area where you can, uh, they don't say you can leave your bags there, but like when we got there, I saw, oh, everybody's leaving their bags there. So I don't have to pay, you know, 17 bucks for a locker. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was like, great, you know, and I had a lock cause it's my gym bag. So I just locked my zippers together mm -hmm. and just left the bag and we went and did our water park stuff. And when we came back, the bag was gone I don't know. and I had my, my phone in it, Victoria's phone, my wallet, uh, all of our stuff. And I went into like fight or flight mode, kind of like it triggered in my head, like snap. And then I looked around real quick and I saw somebody walking away with a towel over a big bump. Mm -hmm. And I saw just underneath the towel, my backpack has this loop on it and I recognized the loop. And so I chased the guy down and he goes into this like locker area or whatever. And he and like t 
well, him and his buddy, I guess, uh, are like these two kind of short Mexican guys with like tattoos and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's got my towel over, or he's got a towel over what I think is my backpack. So I said, Hey, that's my bag. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what? And I said, yep, it's a, it's a blue Swiss backpack. It's mine. It's got a lock on it. You won't be able to get into it. And he goes, Oh, I, uh, I thought it was my friends. And I said, Oh, that's why you have a towel over it while you're walking around. And he goes, well, are you saying I stole it? And I didn't say, yes, I think you stole it, but I gave him kind of that look like, yeah, and just grabbed the bag and walked away. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it was locked up, so they didn't get my my wallet or anything like that. And I was kind of thinking about that a little bit because, like, I was, like, juiced up a little, you know, from, you know, the adrenaline. And also it was, like, two – like, they weren't, they weren't big guys, like, nowhere near my size, but they were – adults like 19 or 20 but probably and all tattooed up and stuff so it's kind of like i mean I'm, i got tattoos also but i was like eh, if this turns out to be like ms13 or something like that <laughs> like i'm dead but it was you know in the, in the middle of a in, in the middle of the locker section at a big water park so and i talked loud so people would so draw attention and uh but i was kind of thinking about it and i was like this is where i'm in a situation where the security here is private the implication of the uh elites area or whatever is that i can leave my stuff there and there was no sign saying not to leave your stuff there which everywhere else there are signs that say don't leave your stuff unattended Mm -hmm. so and i was kind of thinking about it and i was like is this a failure of the park is this a failure of mine or is this uh is it just kind of like one of those things that happens and then i also thought about it too and it was like if i was like a statist like a hardcore statist and acted the way that like a lot of people who are like, well, you don't need a gun. You can call the police kind of thing. If I hadn't have acted and gone and gotten the backpack, I wouldn't have gotten my my wallet and my phones back. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, it's not really a question exactly, but it's like in your situation when you were talking about like the insurance companies and the, and the government and like whose role is what's role. At, at a certain point, I think there is the only person you can rely on in a lot of situations is either who's immediately around you or yourself. Mm-hmm. And so like I could have I could have like, you know, saw the guy going away and tried to go find a security person at the park to get it. But, you know, he may have cut my backpack open and gotten my stuff out of it by then or although he probably wouldn't have had a knife because they have security coming into the park. But he could have walked out of the park with my bag. And nobody would have stopped him. Um, and so I, I was just kind of thinking about it. I was like, you know, this is it, this is a place where the security's private. And but ultimately, the I could have gotten them. They probably would have acted faster than if I had like called the police. But mm-hmm. ultimately, the only person who could act fast enough to get my stuff back in that moment was me. Yes. And so like that's kind of kind of going back to your thing is uh in in the situation with the hurricane, the government can issue the warnings they want. Your insurance company can try to incentivize you to leave by saying we won't cover you if you don't come to Tennessee or whatever um there's a lot of things that other people can do but ultimately it kind of comes down to a personal responsibility thing is you and i've lived in hampton well i live in texas now but you and i lived in hampton roads for a long time you've lived there much longer than me you've got experience with hurricanes you can kind of see what's going on and you do have an instinct of what's a lot of hubbubaloo and what's just regular uh like yeah this is an emergency kind of thing and you can make a pretty good judgment call on that i think and so ultimately the answer to your question is if the government issues a man mandatory evacuation, I would say the, what do you think? Like, what do you, how do you, what does your experience tell you about this? And yeah, I think you're still looking at it like I was. And yeah. I think this will take you a bit because my, my more question was from an anarchist perspective. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause my like, situation was sort of the same thing is like from an anarchist perspective, what's the solution to this situation? Like, should I have gone and run after those guys and got my bag back? Uh-huh. And like, I, I kind of, I didn't have time to think about it. I just did it. Uh-huh. And also I think I looked really pissed off 
and because <laughs> and also like you see like a big six five guy running after you, and these these two were pretty small. Like I would say, I would say maybe five five or something like that. Really, really tiny guys. And uh, and the only reason I would have, I guess, that they were adults is because they had tattoos all over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and then when I left, Victoria was like, "Well, why don't you go tell the security?" And I was like, "Well, I can go tell them that two Mexican guys with tattoos uh, took my bag, but half of the park is Mexican guys with tattoos. It's Texas." <laughs> So, like, I wasn't sure what else to do about it. But, you know, at the same time, these guys, they could be walking around looking for unattended bags and they just snag them, look, for, try to open them up and see what's inside. And if there's something good, they take it. Well, it also could be the fact that you got a lock on the bag. Yeah, that could be. And that, and I thought about that afterward, that, like, the lock kind of indicates that there's something in it. Uh-huh. And and there was, so like, you know. But in retrospect, we've got the preferred parking, so we're just going to leave the stuff in the car and lock the car. And then, uh-huh. and the preferred parking is like, you just walk out the gate and there's our car. Yeah. So you don't have to do like, you don't have to walk like 10 miles out into the parking lot or whatever. Exactly. So. And that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Cause this is a, this is an interesting question. Yeah. Because, so this is like homesteading. Yeah. So in homesteading, and I, I was thinking about this more, and I, I think I, I was trying to fight it more, yeah. <laughs> thinking of dumb, dumb situations to ask about, which is useless. Right. The, I know the logic, and I can logic my way through it myself. Yeah. Uh, but you're walking into the park, and there are signs everywhere saying, don't leave yourself unintended. Right. Then you enter a private area that doesn't say that, that you saw right. in May. But yeah, it, it may, it may somewhere. But like, and that was the other thing is like looking around, everybody's stuff's unattended there. So I was like, oh, this is, this is the area where you can just leave your stuff because there's people that checking to make sure that people who come in. And then this is the other thing. I realized after I saw the guys walking away that there's somebody on the front side of it checking people coming in, but there's a back side of it where there's just nobody. <laughs> so yeah. you can, you can just walk in. Yeah. You don't have to be a member. Yeah. yeah. So. This is the, so this is the, my thought process. Right. So have you ever been someplace like a convention and somebody just starts standing somewhere and then a line forms behind them? Yeah. Yep. And then that person walks away and people are like, isn't this the line for something? Right. Yeah. And then it's not. Yeah. (laughs) What? It's the line for me farting because I don't want to do it to my friends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so the first time I went to an anime convention, that happened a bunch my friend and I, like, and his other friend, well, these two people I was really good friends with in high school, where we were standing around, kind of going, like, you know, just hanging out and, like, watching people start lining up behind this dude. And the dude didn't, and this is, like, before cell phones really were, like, internet enabled. Yeah. So, like, it was just texting, if that. Um, so this guy's just standing there, like, reading the manga or something like that. And then he walks away, and people are just, like, freaking out at him. It's like, what? They're like, well, what's the line? What's the line for? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. and we watched this happen like four or five times. Yeah. We just thought it was the funniest thing and like maliciously or chaotically stupid <laughs> tried to do this a couple of times, like just line up somewhere right. and see people will join us. And we weren't mean enough to when somebody goes, this the line or something. We were just like, no, no, we're just staying around. Right. Yeah. So, but that's kind of the thing is like, there's a lot of times where people just start doing something. Right. And so the question is, does that form like in a homesteading thought and an anarchist perspective, does that create a possible liability in theory to the park? Right. If everywhere else there are signs that says, don't leave your stuff. And then in this one area, there isn't. And there is a perceived sense of security because somebody's watching, but right. you know, you don't know what they're watching for. They're just checking. Are you private? You know, private oh, yeah, yeah. Preferred or whatever. So, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I think that also comes down to like kind of what I was thinking about earlier. And, you know, I moved to Texas. Mm-hmm. I homestead some land in Texas for Buffalo raising because I'm insane. And I think Buffaloes can live in the Texas heat. Okay. And then, you know, 10 years in, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get the Buffaloes. 
and then I'm going to start drilling for oil. You know, one of those like, yeah, I'm going to make money on the buffalo to drill for the oil. But I don't tell anybody about the oil plan because I don't want anybody buying the plots, you know, homesteading the plots around. Me. Right. Then, you know, like as they say, in the, there will be blood. Somebody comes in and slant drills on me and, you know, I drink your milkshake or whatever. Maybe. Right. But like I've made no indication that I'm going to attempt to extract this oil because it was a hidden plan. Right. You know, it, and so that's kind of that, like, it's an esoteric argument at a certain point. Right. Like, you attended a place willingly, you left your stuff willingly, and even if it did say, don't leave your stuff unattended, like, were you, like, when you went there, did you have the intention of renting a locker? No. I, I, well, we went, we went in and the intention, cause we've done, we did this last week as well, cause we didn't reserve a spot in the elite area or whatever. Um, I keep saying elite area or whatever. I don't know what it's called. It's, it's like the elite person's area. So yeah. So the elite area. Um, so what we did last week is we just left the stuff in the car, but we brought the stuff in because we weren't fully changed. And we also wanted to, um, do some stuff first that didn't involve us being in our swimsuits. And, Mm -hmm. um, so when I walked in and we saw that everybody had their stuff there, I was like, Oh great. We don't have to go back to the car. And, and then I was like, well, maybe I should lock the bag to the picnic table. And Victoria was like, well, yeah, you could do that. Um, but it looks like nobody else is. So let's just, you know, we'll just leave it. And I was like, Oh, awesome. Well, I'll just put the lock on the zippers and that way, you know, nobody will come poke around in our stuff without us knowing. And, uh, and then we'll just leave it here and we'll go ride the rides. And so, you know, we did that. And, uh, so it was, so my intention originally was to bring the stuff back out of the car and just put it in the car. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when we sort of saw the situation, I guess this would be kind of a normative thing is that it seemed like the normative, the situation was that the normative process was that if you're in this area, you just leave your stuff there. Yeah. And that's kind of where the, where I don't necessarily like the normative description. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think it's, I think it's normative makes sense in a society where it's not contractually. Right obligated you know like you come up with this normative idea and it, i right. get it i just don't like it because i'm a i guess i'm so materialistic yeah in you know in the concept of purchasing rights yeah i purchased the right to this thing and i have it it's mine right. i'm not giving up the right because i didn't choose to sell it and i didn't choose to abandon it in my thought process right even if i haven't interacted with it, interacted with it in 16 years yeah. but i also understand the concept of abandoning something right <laughs> well i mean and I, I think what it ultimately comes down to and we you know we could keep discussing this ad nauseum but we've got some other stuff to get to yeah. is that in certain circumstances you can deal with yourself like in this circumstance i was able to deal with my I ran after them, which may or may not have gone good, but like, I'm a big guy. I look pissed off. They were willing to just give it back. But, uh, what's that? Like how fortuitous the time, your timing of return. I know. Yeah. And what was so weird about it too, is that it was like, I went into a different mode and I'm, you know, I'm not a confrontational dude. And, uh, but like, as soon as I saw my stuff gone, I was personally offended (laughs) that like somebody would take my stuff and my wife's stuff. And this is where I wonder, Yeah, having known you for a long time, was this, were you offended because it was victorious stuff? I think, I think it was mostly that like, and yeah. it was also like, I, I like in retrospect, I'm like, you know, my wallet's in there. I have to cancel all my cards and get a new ID and all those types of things, which sucks. But, uh, like it was, it was like an affront against me. It was like a personal offense. It was mm-hmm. like, how dare somebody steal the things that I worked hard for? And, uh, and you know, my phone that I, you know, I bought Victoria a new phone recently and bought myself a new phone recently. Like that was, that's hard work. Like that's a lot of money. And you mean like four years old, but new to you. No. Well, yeah, new to me. It is. It's an old phone, but yeah, new, that, to, new to me. Yes. I, I agree. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it was 
all the stuff that was in the bag, like it represents a certain amount of effort and, uh, you know, and, and it was Victoria stuff too, but like, I was just, I was so personally offended by it and just kind of went into like scan mode, scanned, saw the two. It was really, it was the fact that somebody was walking around with a bag on their back with a towel over it. It's, un- mm. it's unusual. And then yeah. I saw the loop and like a little bit of the color of the bag. And I was like, that's it. Those, those guys took it. And so and you also taught thieves a lesson. Yeah. Like don't steal from me. <laughs> no, being better thieves. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So that, yeah. Well, you taught, you taught intelligent thieves a better lesson. Right. Yeah. Don't call attention to the fact that you were doing something you shouldn't be doing. Right. So. Yeah. Okay. So. I believe you had an article that annoyed you. I do have an article that annoyed me. And this is, you know, going back to... Okay. Didn't you have two other things? I've got a ton of stuff. So we can get to whatever we can get to. What's that? We have time for two of those. So okay. Either the article and one of the things, or two of the things and not the article. Well, it's three articles, but uh, <laughs> let me see here. So, well, what's uh, the wine article that annoys? Yeah, that's the one I want to go on because this is a wine <laughs> show, and I've been trying to make sure I have at least one wine item. Wow. So this is uh, it's from uh, OregonLive.com. This I, there's a, a website that I go to a lot. It's not Oregon Live, but it's uh, it's just an ag- <laughs> it's a news aggregator. I think uh-huh. it's called like I think it's called Wine News actually, but okay. Um, and it's just an aggregator for wine business news. And it's just, inter- it's an interesting thing to read it. Um, you can kind of see like what's going on in the wine world, or at least what people seem to be talking about in the wine world. Mm-hmm. This particular article is from OregonLive.com. And it's about, um, I'll read the title of the article. The article is called Willamette Valley Winemakers Propose Major Labeling Changes. It's by Michael Alberti. Um, and so as the title describes, this is the Willamette Valley, Willamette Valley Wine, Wineries Association. Um, <laughs> so this is an association of, I guess, wineries in the Willamette Valley. And we've had quite a few, uh, wines out of the Willamette Valley. Most recently, if you go back and listen to the birthday episode, which, um, I thought I made a note on what episode it was. I think it's episode 21. 20. Is it 20? Okay. So, well, well while you check, I'll, while you read, I'll look it up. Okay. So uh, those two Pinot Grigios that we had, I believe, are from the Willamette Valley. Um, yeah. So, uh, so two Oregon. Yeah, the, that one, though. The two, uh, like two Oregon Gris, I think it's called. Or yeah. King is... All right. So what this, uh, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association thinks is bad about the current situation is that a large number of wineries in the Willamette Valley are leaving it off their labels that they're made in the Willamette Valley in favor of subregions. So Mm. like some of the examples are, uh, I'm not going to say this correctly, uh, Shehalem Mountains, (laughs) Dundee, Dundee Hills, Eola, Amity Hills, McMinneville, Ribbon Ridge, and Yam Hill, Carlton. I guess these are subregions of, I, you know what? I probably know some of these places and have been through them, but, mm-hmm. uh, none of them ring a bell. So I guess a lot of the wine, the, the wineries in the region have just started doing it this. And then a secondary issue that I guess the Willamette Valley Wineries Association has is that they believe that, um, for example, Pinot Noir is a very, a very, uh, famous wine varietal that that is grown in the Willamette Valley a lot. They have a very good Pinot Noir. It's, uh, you know, it's a little bit mushroomy, I think. Uh, it's really, they're very interesting Pinot Noirs and they're very famous for that. So, but according to the Willamette Valley Winery Association, uh, if you grow Pinot Noir grapes on the valley floor, they are subpar grapes. Hmm. And this is their opinion, granted. So I, I don't know if that's the case and I don't know enough about it to 
judge one way or the other, but they say one of the things that's happening is that that land is cheap for wineries. And so these large companies are going, they grow a large portion of their Pinot Noir grapes there, and then they uh, label their wine as a Willamette Valley wine. So this labeling rule has a couple of things involved. If it's a Pinot Noir, they want it to be 100% Willamette Valley uh, Pinot Noir grapes, and they have to be like in a new certification. Uh, they also argue that people should know uh, what government-recognized wine regions a wine is from. And since these subregions are not government-recognized, they should not be allowed to label it as the main label. It should say Willamette Valley and then the sub the subregion under it or something. Oh, yeah. um, they also argue that this is for the customer's benefits because uh, wine should be labeled by the region so customers know where it's coming from. Um, they also argue that it will help the sales of all wine from the Willamette Valley. Because they're, I guess, one of the the situ- part of the situation is that like one of these subregions sells very well, and if people don't know that that's from the Willamette area, they won't try other Willamette wines. They'll just keep <laughs> buying the one from the subregion. There, another argument is Sonoma County has already done this, and by law, you if it's grown in Sonoma County, it has to be labeled Sonoma County before a subregion, and it also has to be in particular wines have to be 100% Sonoma Valley uh, grapes, and um, they also say that. And this is kind of going back to the the large wineries thing. They say it also will protect from inferior wines uh, grown on the valley floor or being mixed with non-Willamette Valley grapes um, from being sold as Willamette Valley wines. Now, the, this is their they've come to this agreement, I guess, and now they are lobbying the state government to make this the law. Uh-huh. And now the Willamette Valley Wineries Association, I don't really have a problem with them doing this on their own and saying like. You know, the Willamette Valley Winery Association certified Willamette Valley wines or whatever. But I don't like the idea that they're going to force these other people who have, through whatever market forces exist, entrepreneurship or market demand, have decided to leave Willamette Valley off of their label. And mm. I don't, I don't know, you know, the article is, is a pretty interesting article. Um, it does go into their arguments a lot. And they, to me, just sound like whiny busybodies about like, oh, well, if, you know, these other ones are inferior to the ones that we produce as members of the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. So everybody has to do it the way that we do it. Yeah. So and this is what... I, I hate when I, this is, it really irritated me because I hate it when people have something going on and then they're like, you know what, this, sh- what the joke is, you know, this shit's so good. We got to get the government involved. The government, yeah. which sucks at everything. Well, and, th- and this is the thing that like, so obviously I, I didn't read this article. Yeah. You sent it to me, which is fine. Yeah. Know, Cause I, if I needed to, I, I should have asked to read it ahead of time just right. so I could make sure I moderate. So one of the advantages of having a two person podcast is, we can moderate each other, yeah. and we often do. Right. Um, but one of the things that I found difficult about the article, the way you summarized it, uh-huh. I don't think you did a, a bad job. Right. Is the fact that I don't know why this is going to solve the problem of the subpar valley floor. Because if you so the the, the it's specifically the valley floor issue was uh-huh. for Pinot Noir grapes. Uh-huh. So it has to be 100% certified Pinot Noir grapes, which they will not certify ones grown on the valley floor. <laughs> but that's so that 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 makes the standard bizarre. Because if I'm growing Pinot Noir grapes, like so, that's the thing that this is one of those things that like is the overcomplication of wine, uh-huh. as you and I have discussed many times, especially like coming out of France where they have these very, very 
heavy handed laws about regional things, you know, all that nonsense. And it makes it so hard to understand what's going on in Hawaii. Yeah. I don't understand. So this is one of those things that you and I like. The first thing I took away from this is where's the market demand? Yeah. So. Well, the this market. is the, actually in that kind of on that note, let's stay on that for just a second. That was kind of my first impression on this too, is there must be a reason why these people are not labeling it Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if it's because of a market demand for it or if it's like, they're like, well, we want to try something different or we want to differentiate this part of the Willamette because Willamette Valley is big. Well, so how about this? Yeah. Everyone who isn't from that part of Oregon yeah. has no friggin' clue what Willamette Valley is. Right. It's and, not like they, it's not like they're Sonoma. And right. They broke the price. Yeah. Like, because it was specifically, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, but this is a marketing ploy. Right. Sonoma is the California varietals. Yeah. That the French in the 70s. Yeah. Sonoma specifically. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not like Willamette Valley was like, the, you know, came in second and then the French wine showed up. And right. It's like, well, you guys just don't hear about Willamette Valley. And by the way, um, so th- those wines that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you thought were from the Willamette Valley oh. are uh, oh, okay. Kings Estate. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I kind of remembered us talking about because I listened to that episode recently. I kind of remembered us talking about the Willamette Valley because I've driven through there, and uh-huh. and I, I always get the Willamette Valley. And the Columbia Valley mixed up because one's in Washington and one's in Oregon, but I think they're actually connected. I think the Columbia Valley um, ends in Oregon. Okay, all right, that could be. We had some. We had a wine from the Columbia Valley. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of noirs on King and State's website. Okay, that's what but, supposedly that is what they are very famous for. And actually, in that book, Wine Folly, which I'll link to in the notes, just because uh, it's a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about the distinct flavor of the Pinot Noir in Oregon. It's different than anywhere else, and it has this uh, strong mushroom flavor to it that is unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll link to that because that's, that's, that's something that's very interesting. Yeah, but that's the – and so this is one of those things that's very hard to take a step back, as we've discussed before, and look at what's actual market demand. Yeah. Because, like, right now, the market demand in cars is large SUVs. Right. Because mid-sized sedans aren't powerful enough, as Eric Peters would point out. Right. At least that's his description of why they're not, and I think he's personally correct. Because, um, like, I you know, recently had to drive my wife's car a couple times because mm-hmm. uh, we got the uh, baby seat stuck in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, we can't get get it out, and I'm sure we'll figure it out eventually, but we usually drive my car on the weekend because my wife doesn't like to drive, and I don't like driving her car. She doesn't like driving my car. Right. But I realized how underpowered both of our cars are by compared, like, because if I get on the highway here, there are people going 70 miles an hour in the two lane entrance. Right. You know, like, I'm trying to merge and they're like trying to cut me off. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, a thing ends and there's 16 people behind you. Right. You're not going to stop on the highway. Just slow down. You don't need to be going 70 Mm -hmm. in the open lane, like the travel lane. Like, there is a passing lane right there. You can go 70 over there and just move over because there was no one, like, multiple times. So, that's the thing is like if there wasn't this government intercedence in sedans to cause them to be less powerful and you know all those things that are going on fuel efficiency and all that nonsense right uh, that's happening that are pushing people into these SUVs that are at the same price mm-hmm. and are more powerful but don't have the emission regulations the same way right it's like so is there really a desire for people to see like, would people actually just prefer to know it's from the Willamette Valley or do people know the Willamette Valley enough to know that they want to know the subregion more than they want to know it's Willamette Valley right or, you know is it the fact that people just want to see a bunch of fancy stuff that's different on each bottle of wine because that's yeah. one of the things I think people seem to like about wine yeah is the like you and I don't like it but I think 
wine snobs and people who consider themselves wine snobs like to see complexity on the bottles. Right. Like, oh, this is from the subregion two of the subregion B of the subregion six. Oh, right. well, I'm a, <laughs> yeah. I went there once and I peed in the soil. We've been tasting the grapes ever since because yeah. I drink nothing but, right. you know, whatever. So I, I think that's a, an interesting position, but like, I, I don't. I, I don't have a problem. This is the thing is like I when I was reading the article until they got to the point where they were like, and now they're going to lobby the legislature to make it the law. I was like, mm-hmm. it's, I was reading the article. I was like, OK, this is kind of interesting. I wonder I wonder what's going on here, because I would assume that, you know, the Willamette Winer, uh, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association um, would be like something that most people would be belonging to. But. It, well, it sounds to me that it's more like a lobby group. Well, so this is this is the the question and kind of the position of everything because every time I hear association, yeah, I immediately think of homeowners association, right, right, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. Uh, but I I always think of you know so one of the things is it's like um, being part of the union when yeah. it's an requirement in some places, right? Where if you're not part of the union, your car is going to get key you know they're not going to beat you up they're not gonna they're not gonna hurt you yeah well some places they will well but you yeah. know so we're, we're going with the most benign okay banal situation where they're actually putting pressure on you right you know they may knock your drink over on accident they key your car they may eat your food in the refrigerator you know work they, they're gonna make it uncomfortable there they're not gonna hurt you they, they're really not even trying to do multiple hundreds of dollars worth of damage to you they're just trying to make your life a little more Right to join unions. A lot of these trade associations, that's what people have been coming out when, you know, it's like the group of scientists that say global warming is true. Right. And they're taking people who are clearly, you know, who are on the record saying, I in no way endorse this statement. I in no way agree with these things. None of my articles say this. And factually, none of them say that. You know, right. they all say need more research. And they're like, oh, they're part of the 98 consensus. Right. It's like, okay, so I joined the Willamette Valley Trade Association, Winery Association, because I get a discount with my fertilizer partner. Right. Like I pay dues because the discount I get on the fertilizer is more than the dues cost. And it's the... What was it in June or July that Supreme Court ruling came out about government employees uh, unions? Yeah, where they basically can't lobby the government on your behalf because most of the people, you know, it's First Amendment rights. Right, it was insanity. Like the the why they ruled the way they did was insane to me. But what they ruled, I was somewhat okay with. But like that kind of the concept is like, you know, I joined the trade association to get these discounts, but I don't stand for any of their lobbying efforts. Right, that's what you're right. It is a lobby because most trade associations like part of this other thing I'm trying to do is go to trade associations to try to find partners and a lot of them are like political action you know they show yeah. like what the trade association has tried to do now that is in no way to say that there aren't situations where the trade association hasn't tried to benefit the public through legal action right and the same with unions there were times in the past where there were inappropriate laws passed by the government go figure right. where these people innocently enough attempted to change the law to be better right it does happen but that you know there's never a clean law yeah like let's think of this you know you and i can think of situations where realistically we don't necessarily disagree with the concept of a law like yeah a law against child pornography you right. know it, there are very few people that are going to be like oh that's there shouldn't be a law against it now I can think of a million libertarian positions against it. Yeah. Well, and you can also get into like, you can get into the weeds where people are like, well, what about anime? What about uh, computer animations? What about like all these different things? And then that's where you get into the weeds and start arguing and things like that. You can split the atom. Yeah. Trying to narrow this down. Right. But, you know, in general, same thing with murder. 
Yeah, exactly. There are a few things in the world where there are many people and, you know, call it 99% of the people will say, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. That's fine. That's against the law. And there are situations where like, you know, in Wehrmacht Germany or or the Wehrmacht Germany, but Nazi Germany, where it's like, oh, laws against the Jews. And then people are like, yeah, we use, you know, the trade associations to pass laws to say, you know, no, no, you can hire Jews in this organization. Right. Uh, yeah, probably not that bad. But then you go and read the law and what they wanted passed. They can hire Jewish people. Great. But then, you know, somebody snuck in there. But you can only pay them up to $2 an hour. You right. know, like all these terrible, like, writers to, to the law. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the problem with legal action is that there's never a clean law because no matter what, its enforcement is violence. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the weird, the weird thing about this is, and you know, because you know that I would love to have some land in Oregon. I love it up there. But, uh, mm-hmm. is that like if I ever wanted to start a winery in Oregon, for example, like this, this type of thing kind of makes me go like, ugh, like, do I really want to be around people who would do this? Cause it's like, yeah. and, and from like my, from, you know, and also you, and I think I put, I posted this on Twitter the other day was that like, one of the detractors of being a libertarian anarchist is that you, it's difficult to enjoy a lot of things because you watch it and you're like, why couldn't they just read Rothbard? And, uh, yeah, and that's that, I think that's one of those things that like, you know, this is one of those people, people don't seem to understand about laws. Yeah. There are people who operate in your industry that have nothing to do with you. Yeah. So like you and I moved to the Willamette Valley. We start our winery. We're growing, you know, these weird Georgian and Ukrainian grapes that no yeah. one's ever heard of over there because, the, you know, it's alike. Right. You know, we have some area that's not under, you know, cultivation. And we're like, let's put in some Pinot Grigio. Yeah. You know, Pinot Noirs. And let's try these bizarre hybrids. Yeah. And we're just trying stuff. And here comes Johnny Two Shoes. Right. Passing laws against it and saying, like, well, we're the trade association, so we know what we're doing. Right. Well, so, yeah. I'm, a winery, I'm not part of your trade association. I'm profitable. Yeah. And, I'm transparent. Yeah. So, you know, I can understand if they were like saying, you know, the truth and advertising sort of thing. Yeah. I understand the baseline response on that. You know, if I'm buying what I think is ibuprofen from you and it's really heroin. Right. Yeah. Like it sucks that I have to go through, you know, in like a libertarian world, like the concept of ferreting out these bad people, but it's the same in our world. Right. You know, like you, you know, how many times do people get like poisoned by something and it takes the government 16 years to pull the profit? Right. And it's like all of these, you know, some of them are trade associations came out and said, yeah, these are bad products. Right. Like, don't buy them. And the trade association is fine. But like, you know, there's people who weren't part of the trade association. And so it, I think our point is trade associations aren't bad. Yeah. Lobby. Right. Until they start. Yeah. Until they start getting, you know, trying to get, you know, these are good ideas. So good. They're like, oh, these ideas are so good. You know, we need to enforce it with a gun. And it's yeah, like, and that, you know, why, why do you guys get a vote to decide that these people have to rename their wines? And, yeah. and I, and, and, you know, granted, I'm curious about it. So I may look into it more and maybe I'll give everybody an update. I, I'm curious to know why these wineries that are labeling with the subregions why they chose to do that and mm-hmm. and there's got to be a good reason like either experimentation or because of market demand let's a b test yeah yeah so they could you know maybe they come out with both a bottle that says willamette and a bottle that says you know chickata hills or whatever and you and, and i know wineries and they they don't have good websites so they clearly yeah, don't right I, you know what I, I might try to track down some of these and call them and just be like hey you know i read this article i'm curious why did you guys you know why did you guys choose not to name it willamette valley and maybe i can get some answers because i think that'd be very interesting first you should ask are you part of the trade association yeah 
Yeah. You could ask, do you know that the trade association is attempting to do this? Right. Yeah. And then do you understand how this would impact you? Right. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be kind of an interesting thing. We could, we could break it on tasting anarchy. Yeah. And so anyways, we, we don't have very much time left. So let's move on to my last article. Oh, I, I'm just, hang on. Give me a second sure. to imagine us being intrepid wine reporters with a like old school gumshoes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be, it'd be cool. Like I've, and I've, you know, this weekend I was supposed to go to a wine festival and I'm trying to like build up a little bit of my skills, you know, communication but like also just like randomly asking people things you know and which is not really my strong suit and uh we didn't go to it because uh i wasn't feeling well or i wasn't feeling well all week and i didn't want to go to a wine festival and drink a whole bunch of wine um and that's kind of what i was probably going to do and then i knew i would be hungover today so uh so i abstained responsibly and we did other things instead that didn't involve me drinking um but that, like, that's kind of one of the things I'd like us to kind of take a direction or whatever is like start start trying to talk to people that know about wine and the industry itself. I'm very interested in not just like this wine takes like tastes like fluffernutter or whatever you know or like <laughs> it's got a it's got a slight hint of basil you know that yeah. stuff that stuff is interesting as well and I like to taste wines and I like to kind of try to figure out if I can find those flavors. But as you and I have discussed on the show before, that's not really the goal of the show. The goal of the show is for you and me to get into it more and with our own kind of slant on it. Mm-hmm. But also like the industry itself is interesting to me. So like, you know, Tom Woods, he does history and politics and uh, economics, right? Mm-hmm. And But he also is just very interested in entrepreneurship. So he does a lot of stuff on entrepreneurship. Well, and he, you know, and he has the occasional musical. And yeah, he, yeah. He, like just he think. Doesn't allow himself to be pigeonholed by his. Right, and skin. and even though this this idea is related to wine, it's just part of. It's not part of the tasting. It's just the industry itself is is fascinating to me. Like there's there's even in North Texas, there are so many wineries, and I'm just curious to like, what do you guys do here? What made you decide to start doing it here? How long has it been here? How long has this tradition been here? You know. So, anyways, we'll save that, I guess, for further investigation. But it, I think it is interesting that, uh, for whatever reason, and, and actually, this also kind of reminded me of like, I guess we'll stay on it for just a second longer. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of sort of the way that France's and Germany, where they had these very strict regional codes, mm-hmm. and. Like one of the cool things about New World wines, as I've discovered through you know various documentaries and things like that, is that we experiment and do things differently. We don't, even though like you know it's tri- tr- true and tried or whatever, tried and tested uh, these ways, tried and tried and true, and that they that they've done in France and Germany. It's like yeah, but you can try it differently, and that's what we've done here in the United States and in Australia and various other parts of the New World that uh, grow grapes and produce wines is that they they're doing things differently and by getting the government involved to do heavy regulation that restricts what you can do and what you can't do to me that seems like a uh, a bad path to go down and it, it's a recipe for stagnation yeah and I, I think this is a an interesting point kind of point out like georgia ukraine and like the soviet bloc states yeah where like georgia has five thousand wine types Right. There, I, like from what I understand, it's very lax there. Mm-hmm. Like, well, the government's just incredibly weak, so like cool. they they can enforce a little bit of stuff, but they don't have like the the pedigree laws and things like that. That are, I, they're not called pedigree laws, but like the well, the very strict laws that France and Germany and places cool. like that have. But that's that's what's fascinating is a place that's grown like we have evidence of it doing wine yeah. for centuries beyond, and mm-hmm. it's like no, we we don't experiment because. 
we know what we know what does work. Right. Yeah. I mean, it does seem also that like Georgia, from when I read the bo- the bottles for like a lot of the Georgian wines that we get from the Russian store, a lot of it is just kind of they've taken on techniques that uh, make it easier to produce large vats like uh, steel cask aging and um, you know mechanization and that sort of stuff but for the most part they're like well no we it's it's not the laws that that guide them it's tradition well i think and i think that's the interesting thing and take on the thing that mitigates the most amount of loss right like okay well if we can consistently produce five thousand gallons then that's five thousand gallons of wine we have whereas you know last year we had 55 and the year prior we had 35 right so rather know where we get. And so I think that's I think that's very interesting, especially when you get to you know a place like America where we had a very unique wine tradition mm-hmm. and then we had prohibition. Right. If you just look at the historic the history of beer and spirits like you see it with like Kentucky bourbon. You know, nothing can be called Kentucky bourbon if it's not grown up, you know, not produced in Kentucky. Right. With these 16 different things. And that's horrendous. Now, like, I understand that you and I have like a Kentucky bourbon standard, but mm-hmm. like, you know, people are like, oh, no, you can't like grow bourbon. You know, you can't produce bourbon in you know, Kansas where they can grow corn just as well and call it Kentucky bourbon. You have to call it Kentucky style or something, you know, some other nonsense. Yeah. But okay. I think we've beaten that yeah. topic. Yeah. But we may revisit it because I am very interested in this. Um, yeah. And what's going on with it? So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on it and see see what's going on and see if I can figure out the other side of it, what, why they would stop doing it. And uh, so stay tuned, folks. Gumshoe Jacobs on the case, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the last article I got, we're gonna go to the Beltway Libertarians for this. Uh, Reason Magazine has an article called, uh, or it's 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 actually. Did you see Did you see the cover of Time Magazine? I guess it was last week. Um, that they. Yeah. Ha- the cover article was, I don't know if you look at this stuff. I see it online all the time. Um, I don't know where you go on the internet. What's that? So I don't know where you go on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I look at time and stuff just to kind of see what's going on. But I look at, I look at a ridiculous amount of stuff. But, uh, so they, their, their cover article, uh, the cover story had this kind of chunky lady on it and it says, uh, I work three jobs and donate blood plasma to pay the bills. And then that's the quote from her. And then the article is, this is what it's like to be a teacher in America. Right. So reason, reason has a critique of this, uh, and rightfully so. And their article is by Nick Gillespie who love or hate him. He's a pretty good journalist. Um, He's kind of a jerk sometimes, but he's also an interesting guy. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's kind of a you know middle of the road Gary Johnson type libertarian. Uh, I think he thinks he's a radical, but I think he's been in D.C. a little too long. But interesting guy, uh, and has written for Reason for a long time, and is a good uh, journalist, I think. Um, and so his article is titled, Are Teachers Really, Quote, Not Paid for the Work That They Do? Unquote. Time says yes. Reality begs to differ. Um, so he, he kind of goes through this article and the story is about, uh, it's basically a sob story. The, the one in the Times is basically a sob story, um, about a woman in, uh, Woodford County, Illinois. And she's a teacher. Her name is, uh, Hope Brown. And so in the article, she kind of goes through like how, how difficult her life is and, um, she so it's one of the things that she works in extra job extra jobs. Um, one of them is like being like a security person who who does the metal detector at like sporting events, and uh, she also sells uh, blood plasma, which is something I've done. Um, oh. And is and that's and then she also I guess sells a little bit of her clothing um, when she needs to on consignment just to get a little extra to pay the bills. Um, she has a master's and has been teaching for 16 years. So the article says um, she's 52, so she's been teaching since she was 36. Mm-hmm. Um, which what happened between like when normal people start working and 36, I don't know, but. 
she started teaching, it seems like, very late. Uh, maybe a career shift. I don't know. Uh, so she, um, she says she is underpaid for the work she does and she can barely scratch out a living and, um, but she's obese. She's a, she is obese, but most of America is. So like, I'm not going to hold that against her. Um, oh, yeah. he, <laughs> you can, you can hold that against her, but anyways, so, uh, according to Nick Gillespie, he says the plight, the, the polite term for this sort of journalism is bullshit. Um, and he says, uh, reason track down the salary for this. Uh, they couldn't track down her specific salary because it's not public record, but they can track down the salary for or the pay scale for uh, Woodford County, Illinois. And a teacher with 16 years experience and a master's degree is paid fifty five thousand six hundred forty five dollars a year, not including benefits. The average benefits for teachers in Illinois amount to a in Illinois amount to about 23.2% of their salary on average, uh, which in this case would be $12,909.64. Okay. Um, the article also mentions that she works those extra, her extra job and sells blood plasma with her husband. So presumably he works at least selling blood plasma and, uh, doing the security baton. So he has some income. And if that's his only income, I assume being in Illinois that he qualifies for either disability or welfare. Um, and so eat, but even if it was only 55,000 a year or 56,000 roughly plus or not including benefits, that's still not bad. And it's not poverty unless you're making really bad decisions. So I also, I, I went a little bit further than the article and I looked up, uh, the holiday schedule for Woodford County. Um, and it looks like not including teacher work days where the kids have off, but the teachers don't, it looks like teachers during the school year get 28 days vacation. During the, between May 24th and August 6th, they're on summer vacation. Mm -hmm. So in addition to those 28 days, they also get those months off. This, right. do, yeah. this doesn't include sick time. This doesn't include vacation days, which they also get. Um, and so kind of to go on further into this, the average American household brings in $61,372 a year. The average American household also has two adults in the household working. So I, I'm not a journalist. It didn't take me a lot of effort to like scratch this out and just kind of expand on Nick Gillespie's stuff. But there's no way that this woman is in grinding poverty because she's a teacher. She makes way too much for that to be the case. So there's something weird going on in her situation or she's lying or the Times is lying. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to the average household, you know, making 61000 which is only only not even $6,000 more than what she's making. And that's not including benefits for either one of them. The average household only gets two weeks vacation and the average household only takes one. Yeah. So she's getting, she gets almost a month in vacation during the school year and she gets two months off during almost three months off during the summer. So, uh, I guess my, my, my conclusion is that this article is batshit. And, uh, also to kind of make this an, an interesting like anarchist point is like what what do you think the free market would say about school and i have my own thoughts on like different ways that school could work in the free market um but i think this is like a good thing to discuss is that it is insane to me that she makes this much money and gets that much time off um, well i don't i don't think it's insane she makes that much money and nor do i think it's insane that she gets that much time off i think this is a perfect example of our one of our personal well Maybe not a favorite, but somebody we both very much enjoy. Yeah. Larry Sharp. Yeah. Larry Sharp recently appeared on Joe Rogan, and Larry, he did something he did something he shouldn't have done. Right. He failed to emphasize his point to Joe Rogan, 
Because Joe kept going like, well, why are we taking money from schools? And what he failed to point out is everything is a business. Right. And everything is based on ret returns. Yeah. So one of the things that Larry was trying to point out to Joe is that we don't need to spend more money at schools. We already spend too much money at schools for the results that we're getting. Mm. If we reduce the value that we are, or not the value, the money we are giving schools to a certain amount, the same amount per, per pupil, they will make it work because there is a, an expected outcome and those that don't will stop receiving resources. Right. And people will move to the areas where they will find the resources that are necessary. Right. This is one of those things that like, you know, you can take the average mean, you know, things like that. And I don't think so. Teachers are paid too much. I don't necessarily think they're paid too little. You know, I, I don't have a, I don't like, I went to public school. I don't want to send my daughter to public school, you know, um, but you know, like I didn't hate public school, right? Like you did, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't. I didn't hate it in high school. Uh, I, I had a good time in high school, but mostly because it was easy by that point. Yeah, um, and and that's the thing is like I didn't hate high school. I didn't hate school. I didn't really hate college, but I wouldn't repeat those experiences, right? And I wouldn't put my daughter in either of those experiences if I can avoid it. Yeah. So, this is one of those things where, from a libertarian standpoint, you know, we spend more money than any other country attempting to educate our country. Right. And we have some of the worst results. And I think this is one of those things that um, Larry Sharp could have done better on Joe Rogan. Say, Joe, we spend more money than California does. Yeah. We have less people than California. We get worse results than California. If I gave them more money, let's assume that's the answer, Joe. Why is it going to work this time? Right. How do I ensure it goes to the teachers? How do we know that those people, like that money is actually going to be effectively spent? Right. Or we can reduce the amount of income that these people are receiving. If we reduce the amount of requirements and enforced nonsense, right. standardized testing and things like that, that cost a huge amount of money to do, Joe. Like, these cost a lot of money to implement, track, we're paying companies to produce this information. We're, we're doing all this stuff. If we don't have to do that, the make work administrators, it won't make sense for the other administrators, the people who are ultimately responsible for making these choices. It's not going to make sense for that they're going to continue to pay these. Right. Some will, and that's stupid, but some won't. Right. And the we don't, we'll have better results, presumably, and we'll see a shift in that means. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, and this is one of the things that I, you know, so I will go on the record. I am overweight. I think I probably qualified to be obese technically, though physically I'm not suffering like obese people do. Yeah. Well, and I mean, <laughs> you know? you're, you're, you're functional. You're not disabled by it. Correct. Yeah. yeah I'm probably better than functionally on the obese. Yeah. Right. But that's the thing is like food in America is cheap and you know, you and I can tear that apart too with all the subsidies and nonsense right but like quality food in america isn't that expensive right and you know like oh i've got a cell phone well how much are you paying for your cell phone how much are you paying for cable how much yeah. are you paying for internet service how much more expensive are those things because the government got involved with them right like so let's just assume we have to educate children we have to spend that money to educate children okay so what about all the money that we spend into you know, make the cable industry better and all these other things that make life more expensive. Yeah. Like, or, you know, the central bank coming in and manipulating the currency, making your currency work less. Like, I did a quick, the mean family income in the United States as of 2014, according to Wikipedia, which, you know, who freaking knows? Right. Um, $72,641. So, that's $20,000 off the meat of a family income. Right. Well, this was how this is uh, the article quoted as the average it's American, immediate. the average American household makes 61,372 is what they said. So I'm not sure if that's yeah. what the difference between family and household is. Well, 
Yeah, so median is you know looking at one side or the other, just split okay. down the middle. Okay. But like that's the thing, like you know, not to lay out numbers, right? But that's not far off of what I my hourly rate of pay is. Now I am much more incentivized financially than that. Yeah. But like that's just one person in income, and, and right. they're in Illinois. Right, and well, and presumably though. Uh, yeah, again, presumably, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Presumably, uh, she's not the only one with an income in the family. Correct. So, because, so like, if, if her husband makes the same amount as her, let's say, or even if he makes $40,000 less than her, they still make over $100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't understand how this story can be at all true. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like in, unless something else is going on, like, you know, she's, she left out the fact that she's got like some sort of weird addiction to beanie babies or something, you know, like, or, you know, Let's let's use it. Let's let's think about it uh, from an, from the standpoint of uh, infinite banking. Yeah, they bought a house in two thousand and eight that they didn't get foreclosed on. Right, but they should have been. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that could be. Yeah. They own a house that they shouldn't own. They live in an area they shouldn't live in. And yeah. this is the thing that, like, you know, to use the term of the night for me, the insidious nature of the government. Yeah. Like, okay, you have sixteen years of experience teaching, which really doesn't mean anything to me. Right. You have a master's degree, which means even less to me. Yeah. Teaching, but you know, it, that is not to say that she did not wasn't the top of her class, isn't the best educator possible. Oh, she very well maybe. She may be a wonderful yeah. person, and even if she is obese, like she may be, you know, she may have been much better previously. Yeah. But if all those things are true, why do you stay there? Right. Like, oh, I, I can't get a different job. Okay. So, like, there are incredibly rich people. Yeah. Who work multiple jobs. Like, look at one of our favorite people in the world, Tom Woods. Yeah. He doesn't do one thing. Jason Stapleton yeah. doesn't do one thing. Well, I don't. I don't do one thing, and like I make a, a decent. I'm the only one in my household that works, and yeah. you know we like, we are getting by pretty well. So yeah, but like look at but and this is one of those ones that I don't mean this in a bad way. Yeah, but look at Scott Horton. Yeah, Scott Horton is constantly mentioning that he doesn't make a little, so he's got to do a lot. Right, and a, you know I. I I understand that Scott Horton can make more money if he attended, you know, he didn't do any of the things that Tom Woods is suggesting, right. you know, at least he, he could make more money. Um, he chooses not to cause that's, that's what he needs to do. But yeah. That's, that's his lifestyle. Yeah. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. But like move to Texas. Don't stay right. in a state that's collapsed. Yeah. Don't stay in a state that has the worst financial crisis. Right. Ooh, be like you did it. Yeah. You know, that, that's just like, Oh, I've got a, I gotta support my three kids through college. Okay, that's very noble of you, but um, you can't afford to do it. Yeah, well, and, yeah, and then kind of to get back to uh, like, how would the the market, how would the free market kind of solve the situation of like a teacher who can't get by or whatever? And uh, I don't think she's paid too much either. Specifically, I, I say I'm, I'm I don't think she's paid too much. I'm just saying that compared to like you or me, she's paid very very well for the amount of time she has off. And then all that time that she has off, that's time that you can also be doing to make money elsewhere. So well, yeah, and that's there. There are some arguments to be made against you know teachers who you know because like oh when they're not teaching, you know everyone else is not teaching, so the market is you know they're. Yeah, it's true. And I, I, I understand, and I've heard those arguments before, but what kind of what I'm saying is that in the free market, if this is the type, I don't think we would have this Prussian style of education in the free market because I think it's a stupid way of educating, but, uh, I, I think it's a really great way of brainwashing. I don't think it's a very good way of educating, but, uh, yeah, I mean, she could be tutoring. Yeah, she could be doing a lot of other things. But what I'd say, what I was saying is that she, in the free market, she would be paid whatever the market would bear. 
mm-hmm. this is Illinois, and teachers are not paid what the market would bear. They're paid what the union lobbies the government to get their teachers paid at. Amongst other things. Yeah, yes. among, yeah <laughs> amongst other things. And and it's also not a great school system. Um, and, you know, she, again, she may be a great teacher. Maybe she's teacher of the year or something like that. Who knows? But uh, I, and I'm not mad at her at all. Like, I... I the the way the article is written, she sounds like a little bitch, but, uh, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know because I don't know her, but I know that the Times article is, and any time teachers are brought up, the way that the, the, I guess, mainstream media portrays it is that it's like they're this underclass of citizens who are not appreciated, and it's like, are you kidding me? At every single term, whenever any Joe Rogan did this, when he's like, "Well, teachers are not paid enough." This this woman, like, look at the, her salary. That's a good salary. Who you think well, she should yeah. be? Should you think she should be paid what LeBron James is being paid? If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And she this doesn't the put the butts that, in the seat. So yeah, and this is the thing that people don't understand and people don't take. Well, teachers aren't paid enough. Well, what are they paid? Yeah, well, I don't know, but it's not enough. Right. Then how do you know it's not enough? Well, they told me it's not enough. Okay. I'm not paid enough. Well, prove. No, I'm telling you, I'm not paid enough. By your standard, yeah. I'm not paid enough. Right. You know, you know, Norm McDonald's. Norm summer off. No, they do. They have the entire summer off, and they have, uh, at least in Woodard, Woodford County, Illinois, they have 28 days off during the middle of the year. Like, I would yeah. kill. I would kill for 28 days off in the middle of the year. I get like six. You get like three. Oh, more than that. But like, uh, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so silly to me that, that this comes up. It's, it's like the myth that won't die. It's there. It's some teachers are not paid very much. And when you start out as a fresh college graduate with a master's degree or whatever, if you look on the pay scale up for, uh, Woodford County, it is relatively low. It's under 40, but yeah, why, why are you getting a master's for education? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, or why aren't you getting what the bare minimum you need to start educating and then just working double hard and teaching and going to night school? I worked a full-time job and went to school full-time to finish my bachelor's. It sucks. It's doable though. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, we're, we're under this concept that you need a college education to be a teacher. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I don't. When who was it? You and I that were talking about it. Where like in North Carolina, you don't you don't need a degree. You just need to be like sponsored by a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> that was my uh, so my government teacher high school is the like I would love to have him on the show just to see what he thought in real life. Yeah, but well, look him up. Maybe maybe he would. He'd be interested. I don't even think I can remember his name. Right. Okay. But you know, he was that guy like who was in the Marines. I think he served in Vietnam, like, but, you know, he drove a Mazda Miata and smoked so many cigarettes, he stunk. Like, <laughs> he was just a super interesting guy. He was very nice, but, like, he was also, like, he'd be the type of guy to tell a kid to shut up or yeah. shut the F up. Right. Like, because they were talking, trying to talk over him, and you wouldn't keep talking over him. Like, you know, you just knew he wasn't taking crap. But, like, he just let me do whatever I wanted because he knew, like, I knew the material. But he... Like, went to school and, like, went to North Carolina and found out that you could apprentice to be a teacher, basically. And then be apprentice to become a teacher and then move to Virginia once he had his teacher's license. Right. And, like, because you had it out of state, like, they just accepted it. You know, one of those weird loopholes where you don't have to meet any of our requirements. You just got to do this. Yeah. And that's the thing is, like, how many school systems are now requiring masters? Because so many people are bad teachers. Right. Like not they're bad teachers because they're so overworked. They just aren't able to handle the kids or the material is extremely difficult. You know, like they're the calculus teacher and they're trying to teach it in like downtown, you know, the middle of the ghetto in St. Louis or something weird right. like that. You know, it's, they're just bad teachers. And, and that's the thing. It's like people, there wasn't a department of education until the seventies. Yeah. When did American education start to go in the toilet? Right. Like, 
So we we have a bad education system. When was it? When was it ever better? Yeah. Like well, this yeah. is what I really want these people to tell me. Like, right. when was it better? When we were on the gold standard and you didn't deflate the dollar into nothing? Yeah. When yeah, when there wasn't the extreme truancy laws, like you know, the like, yeah, there's a lot of things. So like, let's go into like anarchist or libertarian fantasy world, and I'll tell you a couple of the systems that I like a lot better than the Prussian system, which is what we have, well, or we have a modified Prussian. Okay. You got to write those up. Okay. Because we are, yeah, we are at true. our length limit and we're at my, uh, sleep limit, meeting <laughs> limit. <laughs> All right. Okay. Then, uh, I guess then that, that'll be it tonight and stay tuned because I'll go into the, the styles of schooling that I think are much better. I was a homeschooled kid. Oh, oh, um, here's the thing. Those will be notes okay. on the show. There you go. Look, look at, show. yeah, look at the show notes and I'll give a history. One of them will be Quaker schooling. One of them will be, uh, quest schooling. One of them will and be. You'll have to read the notes to see the rest. Yep, yep. You'll have to read the notes to see the rest. So I'll talk to you guys later. Uh, oh, yeah. hang on. Oh, we got to so, do plugs. Yeah, Villa Riesling, um, Mosul, 2014, Spetsleys. Now, it is truly like 7.5%. I have drank all but a last bit, yeah. saving the last bit for writing my review. Uh-huh. Um, I got it for 9.23. Uh, flavor-wise, definitely worth the nine bucks. Alcohol-wise, no, um, but that's fine. You know, sometimes you don't want to get hammered. Um, I've got a little bit of a buzz going on. Um, but yeah, definitely very favorable Riesling. And kind of in, at some point in there, remember when we were drinking um, a Grigio from New Zealand? Which yeah. We kind of go back to it. It was weird. Oh, we that's right. Yeah. got like a, a carbonation feeling to it. Yeah. I got this late into this one. So, but like very light, like kind of on the, the second or third flavor area. So very interesting. Um you know, if you get an opportunity, pick it up. It's, you know, it's $10. It's 2014. Um, unfortunately, good luck trying to find another one, apparently. Cause yeah. Where I could find anything, uh, after like 2015 at the latest, it seems. Um, so yeah, plugs. All right, plugs, uh, at Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been very active on there lately, so come and see my shenanigans and, um, go to tastinganarchy.com to read our articles. I, I think I mentioned it last week, but I have an article up recently about, um, Libertarians on the Prairie, the story mm-hmm. of Rose Wilder Lane and Laura Ingalls Wilder. So I think it's a pretty good summary of the book. And if you're interested in that topic, take a look at it. Um, you can also email us at, um, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Uh, you can also communicate to us through the website by leaving a comment on one of the articles or yeah. by tweeting me directly on Twitter at tastinganarchy.com or at tastinganarchy on Twitter. And so as I think this will be two episodes out probably, you know, depending on our time frames. Okay. Um, we're now on iTunes and we're also on Google Podcasts. That's right, Google Podcasts. And yeah, and actually probably by the time this airs, we will also be on Spotify Ooh. and SoundCloud. So. Yeah. So, so whatever yeah. platform you're on, we're trying to get on those. You can't leave us a review. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's always saying it. Leave us a review. Leave us a review. Leave yep. us a review. It really helps. It does. Yep. We are. So on Google, if you put in tasting anarchy, there's another show that comes up and it's not about wine. And it's not about anarchy, but now we come up too. So you've got to have other friends who are interested in wine. If you don't, we'll help them. <laughs> and you got to have other friends who are interested in anarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're not great at anarchy. Either way, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Get in contact with us. Let us know you're out there. Right. Yep. And it, uh, you know, we've got a couple of people who have talked to us who listen to the show and they seem to enjoy it. So good. I'm happy to report that. So if you guys want to let us know that you like it as well, please do. And uh, on that note, stay free. Stay free.
drinking half gallons and calling for more. Drinking wine, sport, you to drink wine. Wine, sport, you to drink wine. Wine, sport, you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, Blackberry. Wine, wine, Port and sherry. Wine, Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den, he wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, 40, you to drink wine. Wine, 40, you to drink wine.